while you're looking for that, let me catch you up on what my life's been like since we've seen you last, unless you're here for Easter. Even I got to make our ninth or eighth trip to the Holy Land back in January of this year, and it was an awesome experience. Joe, I got your text. He wants information for next year, so I'll tell everybody. We're going again in January, and if you'd like information, just get me your email address, and I'll send it to you. The title of the message is Hold On, and I know you could read that more than one way, so I'm going to explain it. I don't mean your kid's about to run out in the road and you're saying, hold on. Not a good idea. No, it's hold on, meaning hold what you got. Hold on. Do you ever think you've made a mistake? You ever made a decision and thought, maybe that was a mistake? You ever gotten in the wrong line at Walmart? My question about Walmart, why do they have 30 registers and only five are ever open at one time? But secondly, why is it every time I get behind someone, I thought, this is the best line to get in. There's only one person ahead of me. They got a call for a price check, get a check approved, take something back, slow down. So you start looking at other lanes, right? Say, oh, oh, they just opened aisle three. Well, by the time you get there, 14 people have gotten in front of you. So my suggestion is pick a lane and stick with it at Walmart. Get you a buggy. That's an offensive weapon. It, it fends people off. Get in line and stay your position. So what does that got to do with the Word of God? I got good news this morning. You can hold on to Jesus. If you don't hear me say anything else, I'll go ahead and tell you the end of the message. Because he's holding on to you. Let me read chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. As we see what the writer of Hebrews... Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Is anybody here? We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Some think the Apostle Paul, but he wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. Every time he identified himself, he doesn't hear. So we don't know who wrote it. If you've got a King James Bible, it may say the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews, but that's not in the text. So we don't know who wrote Hebrews. So you'll hear me refer to the writer of Hebrews because we don't know exactly who it was. But we know that it was God's inspired word, right? God-breathed word of God. So that's why we read Hebrews. Therefore... We're going to find out in just a minute what that therefore is there for, but let me continue. Therefore, brethren, since, and I want you to notice the word since and the word let us in this passage. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And thirdly, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So my first point is your confidence. We have confidence to enter the holy place. What's, what's the writer of Hebrews talking about? He's talking about the holy of holies. He's talking about the very presence of God. Now, was it always that way in the Old Testament? Could people just bebop into the holy of holies whenever they felt like it? Wasn't a good idea. Nadab and Abihu did it. Sons of Aaron decided, that looks like a cool place to go. Let's get us some incense and go behind the veil and see what happens. Well, what happened? Fire came out and consumed them. I think there was nothing left after the purifying fire of God consumed them 
And so God says, you don't just come flippantly into my presence. But we get to verse 19, and he starts saying, come with confidence. If you're one of the priests of the Old Testament, you heard what happened in Nadab and Abihu. How, much, how, how do you enter the veil? I don't think you're going back there proudly with your chest poked out. You're probably going with a little bit of fear and trepidation. Because I want to make sure I'm not doing this wrong because we, ha- we found out what happened the last time somebody did something wrong. In fact, let me read you just to give you some context, a few verses from the beginning of the chapter to see the difference in the way they used to enter the presence of God and how we can now enter the presence of God. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they continually offer year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because of the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. You hear that? They had to offer sacrifices for the sins every year. In fact, daily in the temple, sacrifices were being made. But on one day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, they had to offer sacrifices. So your sins were forgiven. You probably felt good for a few minutes till you sinned again, right? Ready for another sacrifice. Verse 4. For it is impossible by the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But whose idea was it to offer bulls and goats? Well, it was God's idea. It was a foreshadowing of what was coming. That eventually the spotless Lamb of God was going to give up his life once and for all. We don't have to do it year by year. We're forgiven. Then you get over to verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest, now catch this, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So the sacrifices he's offering can cover sins temporarily, but it doesn't take them away. Verse 14, here's the good news. No, verse 12. But he, having offered one sacrifices for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Why do you sit down? Because you're finished. The priest never sat down in the Holy of Holies because the Holy of Holies, the sacrifice was never finished because you had to do it all over again the next year. So this is good news, isn't it? When you're forgiven, when Jesus, when you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior and you receive the forgiveness of your sins, you are forgiven. He doesn't die on the cross again every time you sin. You are forgiven. So my first point is your confidence. Therefore, brethren, we have confidence, literally all outspokenness, frankness, bluntness, assurance, to enter the holy place. But where does our what's the source of our confidence? By the blood of Jesus. Listen, I could I could go a whole year without sinning. I probably can't, but if I did, that doesn't earn me any more standing in the presence of God than I had at the beginning of the year. You ever feel like you've, you've had a pretty good week so you can go to church kind of feeling pretty proud? I remember as a teenager, every now and then my youth minister would say, I want you to do the Bible study on Wednesday night. And y'all, y'all are going to laugh, or maybe you will. But sometimes I think, well, I can't sin between now and Wednesday. Well, if we could avoid sin, why don't we just avoid sin? No, we needed a Savior who is Christ the Lord, who once and for all has offered sacrifice for sin. So we enter with confidence, not in our own good behavior, but by the blood of Jesus. If you enter on on your own merit, what's going to happen? 
part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, on that day I'm going to look at you and say, depart from me, I never knew you. There's going to be a lot of people that say, but didn't we talk in your name? Didn't we preach in your name? Didn't we even heal people in your name? I never knew you. So our confidence is not in the flesh, it's not in our good behavior, it's in the blood of Jesus Christ. And he's inaugurated a new and living way through the veil. He's referring back to the veil in the temple. I've studied this week just to see what scholars say about the veil in the temple. They say it was 30 feet wide. The tabernacle had a little bit smaller veil. By the time they got to the temple, it was 30 feet wide, 60 feet long, which means once they put it up, it was 60 feet tall. Does that make sense? And anywhere up to four inches thick. Several commentators said it took 300 priests just to put it in place. So what happened to the veil? It was torn in two. I read commentators say you could have put a wild horse on each corner of the veil, and those wild horses could have never pulled that four-inch woven tapestry apart. But it was ripped from what? Top to bottom. Catch the significance of that? you got to get this. The veil protected us from God. Because to go behind the veil to be in the presence of God in an unworthy manner would cost you your life. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the veil was torn from top to bottom. Symbolizing, signifying, come now with confidence by the blood of Jesus. I've never heard anybody preach a sermon on this. I've got a question. What did the Jews do with the veil? It's ripped, right? So it needs alterations. Break out the singer sewing machine. That's my fear. If you have believed and trusted in that veil, that piece of fabric that has kept you from death, kept you from accidentally going into the presence of God, you've got to put it back up, right? Think about that. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. If somebody smarter than me can figure it out, you can tell me. We'll talk about it. But I don't see anywhere in Scripture where it says they put it back up, but they may have. But my encouragement to you as we enter into the presence of God with confidence, is there anything hindering you from coming into God's presence? There have been times in my life because of fear or shame or guilt, I didn't feel worthy to come into the presence of God. Well, guess what? You're not. You come into the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ, not because of your best effort, not because of your worthiness. Some of the things that keep people from the presence of God is just religion. Feel like I was raised in a church. I've heard people share that. I was raised in a Christian home. Well, I was raised in a brick home. And it's great if your mom and dad were Christians. It's great if your mom and dad took you to, to the church and you were part of Bible studies growing up, vacation Bible schools and mission trips and all those kind of things. But have you ever trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? So my confidence is not in my best behavior. It's not in perfect attendance in Sunday school. It's not in the size of my Bible. How much of it I've memorized, it's in the blood of Jesus Christ. And because of that, since those things are true, let us draw near. I want to I focus on lettuce for a minute because the next time you eat lettuce, I hope you think about these three lettuces. A guy named Tim worked at a grocery store. This lady came in and said, I want half a head of lettuce. He said, ma'am, we don't sell it by the half a head. She said, well, that's all I want. I live by myself. I don't want it to go bad. I want half a head of lettuce. Well, she argued with him so much, he finally just in anger went back into the back room, the stock room, and took out a cleaver and just cut it in half. His boss walked up and said, what are you doing? 
She's saying, this idiot outside wants half a head of lettuce, and I'm giving it to her. Then he realized she's standing right behind him. He said, and this nice lady wants the other half. Well, the next day, his boss called him into his office and said, Tim, that was, that was awesome. He said, that lady's one of our best customers. You've got to understand, she's from Canada. And Tim said, Canada? The only thing that comes out of Canada is ugly women and hockey players. The boss said, wait a minute, my wife's from Canada. He said, oh, really, what team does she play for? So I tell you all that to get a chuckle, but I also want you to think about the three lettuces. Since these things are true, the writer of Hebrews is saying, let us, first of all, draw near with a sincere heart in the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean. See, the priest in the Old Testament had to sprinkle blood. And it covered sin. It offered atonement. But it didn't take away sin. So now, your hearts have been sprinkled clean. Not just your outward behavior, but the very core of your being, your heart, has been sprinkled clean from an evil consciousness or conscience. Your bodies are washed with pure water. So how do we draw near to God? Well, first is prayer. Do you ever feel like you can't pray? Do you ever feel like, man, I, I can't pray. I feel like I'm talking to the ceiling. I don't think God hears me because I've done too many wrong things. Well, same thing's true. If you ever feel unworthy to pray, you need to pray. Because our worthiness, again, comes through the blood of Christ. The reason I have access to the throne room of heaven is nothing that I've done. Even the fact that I was baptized as a 12-year-old kid, even the fact I've done all these religious things, I come into his presence through prayer based on my faith and the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Bible study. Personal Bible study, corporate Bible study. You get to know God. You get to know his character. Be a part of small groups. Be a part of a church that teaches the Bible. And worship. Both personal and corporate. I hope, I hope you don't just worship on Sunday when somebody leads you in music. And there's more to worship than singing. But I appreciate the fact we're able to join together today as a congregation and worship Jesus. That's how you draw near. Secondly, your confession, verse 23. Second lettuce, hold fast. The second lettuce is hold fast. Your confession of hope without wavering. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is hold on to that. For he who promised is faithful. So the picture I want you to see is I'm holding on to something, but he's holding on to me. He's made a confession himself, and that is I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's the God we serve. That's the Jesus who died on the cross to give you life and eternity. So hold fast. You ever tried to take something away from a two-year-old? It could be something dangerous like razor blades. What are they going to say? Because I remember looking in the face of our youngest one time. He had a stick in his hand. He was waving it around. And as a parent, you know, the standard answer is, quit doing that, you're going to put someone's eye out. And I went up to him, he was about two years old, and I looked at him, I said, give me that stick, and here's what I saw. Uh-uh. <laughs> he was determined, I'm holding on to this stick. And what will the two-year-old do if you try to take something away from them? They'll cry, and they might bite you. <laughs> so you've got to be careful. But I wonder how many times the enemy comes to me, how many times the devil comes to me and says, let go of that stick. 
Let go of your faith in Christ. He doesn't really love you. Look at all the things you've done. Why would he love someone like you? And I've told you this before in this congregation. Next time the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Get thee behind me, devil, because you're not speaking the word of God. The truth is I can hold fast because he's holding fast. I'm making a confession that he is my Lord and Savior. He's making a confession and a promise that he'll never leave me or forsake me. In fact, Romans 10, 9 says, If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart God raised him from the dead, what happens? We shall be saved. Not, not 95% chance, not 50-50. I think some people think it comes down to a coin toss in heaven. No, you shall be saved. So hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to the fact that you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and none other. That is, a, that is our hope. I was listening to the talk radio once. Actually, it was Christian radio, and they quoted somebody that said, Hope is nothing more than delayed disappointment. Isn't that sad? Some people have no hope. I wonder how lost people deal with things like tragedy and death because there's no hope. But I can hold fast to the confession of my hope without any wavering. What does wavering mean? It means shifting. It's like the waves of the sea. You're here one day, you're here the next day. You can stand resolutely on the promise of God, and that is where our hope is founded. It's on his promises, not on my best effort or behavior. So hold fast to confession your hope without any wavering, for he who promised is faithful. His promise is why I can hold fast. Then my last C is your consideration. He says, consider one another. The word literally means give concentrated thought. One of the gifts that we have as Christians is the church. And one of the great things that ought to happen in the church is we ought to encourage one another. If you go to a church that there's never any encouragement, maybe you need to find a better church. Now keep in mind, some of the most miserable people you'll ever meet are in church. They're miserable and their job is to make everybody else miserable. They're self-appointed Holy Spirit. You ever know, Don't raise your hand. But do you know people like that? I do. I've, I've, I've preached in churches where I've thought, dude, where's the joy of your salvation? You're more concerned about the rules of whether they can bring a bottle of water into the sanctuary or not. I better get off that soapbox. <laughs> Let us consider how to stimulate one another, incite to good. Why do I need somebody helping me do good? Because it doesn't come natural. There's a philosophy in secular humanism that says, left alone, everybody has a tendency to do good. You've never had children. Nobody had to teach your daughters how to throw something at their brother. Nobody had to teach your sons how to pull their sister's hair. They get that from their mother. No. No, they get that from their father. So let us consider how to stimulate one another. So we're, we're looking at each other in the church and we're saying, how can I help you grow in faith? Especially those who've just come to faith. They're younger believers, men or women, young children, boys and girls. Well, a few things I wrote down. Number one's prayer. How much time do you spend praying for your church? Here's what I've discovered. The people who complain the most do the least in church. People who complain the most ask them, well, have you prayed about it? No, it's just not right. Well, no, it's not right. You're not praying about it. So prayer. Pray for your church, your leaders, your attenders. Pray for their salvation. 
How else do we stimulate one another to love and good deeds? By your example. Show how to walk with Jesus. It's better caught than taught. How else do we stimulate one another? Allow God's word to flow through you. You need to be studying the word of God. So when you have conversations with people, it spills out. And last, encouragement. We've never lived in a generation where it's easier to connect with people than we do now. Send notes. Y'all remember, remember stamps? You used to have to put stamps on stuff to get it to people. I remember when Eve and I were dating. I was at, in Macon. She was at Clemson. You'd write a letter. It'd take three days to get there, and you had to put a stamp on it. By the time it got there, you probably already talked on the phone. Of course, that was dangerous, too, because the phone, you'd run up a $100 phone bill. That really happened to me. My freshman year, Eve and I were talking so much on the phone, I had a $100 phone bill. I had to sell my math textbook before the exam so I could take the exam. So phone calls, they don't cost anything anymore. You've already paid for the plan, right? So text, email, snail mail, banner plane, somehow just encourage people. And I'm going to pray that God starts putting people on your heart. If you sometimes sit down in church and they're starting to do worship and God puts a name on your, on your mind, that's not an interruption from worship. That's part of worship. Write it down. I had a professor that said, a dull pencil is better than a sharp mind. Write it down. And do what God tells you to do. It may be a phone call. It may be a personal visit. It may be a card, a letter, an email, a text, a yik-yak, a TikTok, whatever you're using. I like them snack chaps. <laughs> but what are we stimulating them to? Love and good deeds. Why do I need help loving people? Because some people are hard to love. Sometimes I have to pray, God, let me see them the way you do. Because God loves them. Good deeds, again. Apart from Christ, I have a tendency to do the wrong thing. And so we're helping stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And then don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. What happened during COVID was a dangerous thing. People quit going to church. I'm glad we had video opportunities to worship online and do those kind of things. And 19 out of 20 pastors I talked to said our attendance is in half, but our giving's up. So only God can do that. That's a miracle. Why do people abandon church? Three reasons. Number one, laziness. I, I got to be honest. You know, when we weren't having church, I got used to watching the service in my pajamas. That's comfortable. That's nice, isn't it? But what are you missing by staying at home watching it online? You're missing the church. You're missing the body of Christ. You're missing the fellowship of believers. You're missing the opportunity to be encouraged, and you're missing the opportunity to encourage. So be safe. Don't do things that are stupid, but join together. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. And that was even happening during the first century when the letter of the Hebrews is written. Apparently they had a pandemic, and people had to watch it on stone tablets. That, that was terrible. Somebody groaned over there. I, I agree with you. <laughs> Other pursuits. Sometimes it's because you got a lake house, a mountain house, a beach house, a boat. And we let other things become more important to us than our relationship with God and our association with the church. And the third thing, you're just mad at somebody. 
you don't like the color of the carpet, the color of the chairs. We took color, care of the color of the, chap, of the carpet here at the chapel. Ricky, nobody has complained about the color of the carpet, have they? So next time, if somebody complains about the color of the carpet, just rip it up. It's kind of like if your wife fusses at you about the toilet seat, whether you leave it up or down, just take it off. But people even, even in the first century were, were abandoning church. And these were people who professed to be believers. Find yourself in association with other believers. Find a church that preaches the word of God and honors him through worship. And plug in. Get involved. But encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's hard to encourage somebody from a distance. I've told this story before, but I'm going to end with this story. We lived in Gastonia. We have a summer staffer from Gastonia this year. We lived in Gastonia, and we bought an old house. And we were in the process of restoring it. I think it was about 80 years old. And when thunderstorms came up, the whole house was shaking. And our daughter across the hall said, Dad, I'm afraid. I said, what are you afraid of? She said, I'm afraid of the thunder. I said, the thunder's our friend. If you hear the thunder, it means you weren't hit by the lightning. That's a good thing. That wasn't good enough for her. She said, yeah, but I'm still afraid. I'm all alone in here. I said, well, no, your sister's in there with you. Well, her sister was asleep. In her mind, like my mind, once you go to sleep, you've left the planet. You're no good anymore. <laughs> so that young girl, I found myself just kneeling beside her bed and holding her hand and saying, it's going to be okay. I'm right here. And she went right off to sleep. That's called being Jesus' skin on. Sometimes the only way we can encourage people is to be Jesus with them. Allow the love of God to pour through your life into the heart of somebody else that is hurting and needy. So don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But all the more as you see the day approaching, what does that mean? Y'all, Jesus is coming back. Live today like he could come back tomorrow. I've had people say that. If I knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I'd do things differently. Well, besides going and buying a Ferrari and putting it on credit, what would you do differently? then it's probably a good idea you do that. So be encouraged today and hold on. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word.